0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. On the podcast, we have an enormously important topic that we'll be discussing with two top researchers, not here in the United States where I am, but maybe where you are, which is Canada. I wanna thank Dr. Steven Scherer and Dr. J- Jacob Vorsman, both from the University of Toronto, both world-renowned geneticists who are highly respected in the field of neurodevelopmental disorders and psychiatry. Um, and who are both again at the University of Toronto. Would you guys both mind introducing yourselves? Otherwise, I will miss something.
1: Sure, yes, and thanks for the opportunity to be on this podcast. That's really, uh, that's, I'm I'm really grateful for that. So uh, my name is Jakob Worsman. I'm a child psychiatrist and a genetic researcher here at SickKids. And I'm Steve Scher. Uh I'm a
2: PhD-trained genome scientist, and I'm currently chief of research at the hospital for sick children which we call sick kids and both of us are um, professors at the university of toronto and uh, i I think it's important to preface our background because uh, the background actually will influence the language and terminology that we use which is the topic of our discussion today
0: yeah it is and let's go ahead and get into it so the you recently published a paper uh, about something called syndromic autism. So I should also preface this by saying that Dr. Scherer and Dr. Borsman have published a lot on a lot of different topics around genetics and neurodevelopmental disorders. They are world experts in what are the roles of genetics in brain development? How do they influence neurodevelopmental disorders and autism? and what are things like common variants and rare variants. And so you've heard me say these words before, but here we have two experts in the field to talk about them. So one of the things uh, that you recently published about was the term syndromic autism. So can we go ahead and get started? Um, the readers or the listeners, I guess I should say, have been introduced to the terms Phelan McDermott syndrome, Angelman syndrome, fragile X syndrome, the CUTE syndrome. Um, And these are syndromes of many different symptoms and features, including but not limited to autism, um, but have a known genetic variant associated with them. So can you give us a sense of what in the past has been the term syndromic autism then?
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, you're, you're giving very good examples of existing syndromes. So that's already helpful. So maybe first, you know, the the root, the, the Greek root of the word syndrome is syndromein, which means runs together. So when we say syndrome, we actually mean we're seeing a pattern of symptoms, a pattern of symptoms that seem to be running together in patients, right? So you, uh, one of the syndromes that is well known is Down syndrome. And when it was originally described, it was... You know, patients that had short stature, low low IQ on average, had facial features, narrow eyelids, uh, cardiac abnormalities, and these symptoms, they kind of presented together in many patients. They run together, and that's why we call it Down syndrome. And then subsequently, I think this, Steve may know this much better, I think it was in the early 60s by a French geneticist, uh, Lejeune, he discovered that that particular syndrome had a particular genetic cause. Right. So this is why many of these syndromes have now recognized uh, genetic causes.
2: And in that case, there was uh, three chromosome 21s. That's the genetic form of, um, of Down syndrome. And in fact, some individuals with Down syndrome have autism. So it depends in a way on your entry point. So a little bit of background. So, yes, um, we've both been working in the field of genetics and autism spectrum disorders for well over 20 years now uh, have contributed many of the different genes that have been identified and also translating this information to try to benefit families in some way. So when we um, conceptualized writing this paper, it was really Jakob's idea, uh, but as a result of many other papers we were writing uh, around the same time. <clears throat> and uh, he came to me and said, well, we need to really address this issue of of the term syndromic autism and what it means and what it doesn't mean and how the community should should uh, think about this. So I was really excited about this in particular because we we're were gonna submit it to genetics and medicine. And the reason why this is really relevant is now genetic testing is occurring for for autism. Uh, Now that the community has identified somewhere on the order of about a hundred different genes that uh, have diagnostic value in autism. And the genetics and medicine um, readership are medical geneticists and genetic counselors who use this information on a daily basis. Um, and they would use the term syndromic autism in a different way than a molecular biologist like myself would use the term. And that would be used differently And then Jakob is a neuropsychiatrist, a psychiatric geneticist. He would use it in a different term. Uh, and, and I say this because it's important. I, I actually had written other reviews on my own with other clinician scientists where we use syndromic autism, um, but this was earlier on, and the field had not evolved yet to the point where um, we we really have enough data now to think about how we should use specific terms. Okay, and recognizing that there's always a evolve an evolution of how we actually use this this terms, and needs to also be put in the social context too. But um, the concept behind this paper, I really liked how Jakob had, um, if you haven't read the paper, there's a great figure, figure one in, in the manuscript that describes the whole uh, scenario. Um, and I'll let him describe that. But it really lays out nicely when to, uh, you know, why we need to really address this issue. I would say my major con- contribution to the paper was adding contemplating to the title. I <laughs> know, <laughs> that's so when we were writing the manuscript, uh, kind of probably about halfway through, we thought about um, you know, the title and, and what to focus on, what were the key messages? And uh I, I thought really we should use the term contemplating uh in the title because we're still really thinking about how to best present this. Although by the end, I think we're both in full agreement. Of course, Jakob was, that um probably the term syndromic right now, uh based on what we know, is, is not not so relevant for describing autism. And we'll talk to you about uh describe how we think we should actually use the terminology
1: yeah yeah exactly so so maybe, maybe i i will i will lay out the reasons why we think we need to rethink this term syndromic autism the initial word syndrome in conjunction with autism was autistic syndrome or autism syndrome and so note that the order of the words is different and what, what was meant by it as exactly as in Asperger's syndrome was uh, when a patient presents with the symptoms that are characteristic for autism or are characteristic for Asperger's. And so we call that autistic or Kanner syndrome, autism syndrome, Asperger's syndrome. But in the newer, in the, 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 the concept that we talk about, it's not autistic syndrome, it's syndromic autism. Uh, it's a, it's a, it looks like a small difference. It is it is a small difference, but it's essentially entirely fundamentally different meaning. So, autistic syndrome and syndromic autism are two totally different things. So, there's already some confusion uh, confusion there. Uh, and then, if you just think about okay, then what is the definition of um, syndromic autism? And, and somewhat surprisingly, really, to us as well, if you look at the literature, the conclusion is there is not a good definition. Like people just use it and they give their own definition. And if you go from paper to paper, you'll see that the, that definition varies. But in essence, there are two components, two elements to that definition. And one is syndromic autism is autism that occurs in the context of additional symptoms. So the person presents with autism plus other things, it could be uh, cardiac abnormality, seizures, uh, morphological features and so on, intellectual disability. So that's one element. The other element is syndromic autism is autism that occurs in someone with a known or established genetic etiology. And then many times implicitly or explicitly, those two components are viewed together essentially saying syndromic autism is autism where there are additional features in addition to autism and a genetic etiology. And this is where the flaw is. This is where it becomes really uh, not helpful because it is not corroborated by, it's not supported by the data. Uh, What is the data telling us? The data is telling us that there are patients that have quote-unquote only autism so no additional features and they have a genetic etiology so they fall outside of this definition and then there's also patients that have autism and all types of additional features and they don't have a genetic etiology yeah
2: so i'm just going to add to uh, come back to my opening comment about entry point (laughs) Um, everything Jakob said is accurate, and, and um, but we, we use different terminology. So, so I, I think both of our entry points are individuals who are enrolling in our research studies because they have a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis of, of autism, okay? And then of course, Jakob also sees patients in the clinics and they're coming, at least for the sake of this discussion, because they have autism spectrum disorder. So um, some of them have additional clinical presentations, and some people call this uh, syndromic autism or dysmorphic autism or autism plus is a term we hear a little bit more and more. Um, And then now, more recently with the genetic discoveries, we also find individuals that have an autism diagnosis, but they also have a genetic um, specifier that the genetics actually can further define or uh, describe the type of autism they have genetically. So um, there are roughly 100 different genes or copy number variants, and we can talk about what a copy number variant or CNV is, is later, that are used diagnostically to explain why someone has uh, an autism outcome. Okay, so I think the important point to think about is, uh, we we heard about things like Rett syndrome and tuberous sclerosis and neurofibromatosis. These are these are different disorders that have different names, but in some cases they also have an autism diagnosis, right? But not all the time. What we're talking about, the entry point is autism. If you have an autism diagnosis. What else do they have? Do they have additional clinical features that may be part of another name syndrome? And we talked about downs and things like this. Uh, and then we're saying now also it can be you can have also autism with a, a genetic descriptor attached to it. So the genetics defines the type of autism they have. So it becomes a little bit complicated. And we're saying that removing syndrome now is probably the right time to do it because that adds even too much (laughs) more complexity to an issue that's already heterogeneous or complex.
0: You had me at, there's no consistent definition of syndromic autism, but what are some of the other reasons why this is no longer a helpful two words well, to put together syndromic sure autism. sure there's
1: uh, for one thing um there is there's is this understanding or or assumption i think that if you talk about syndromic autism you're actually talking about something else a different entity than if you talk about non syndromic autism and i'm talking about the autism part of this right and and I think there's no data that actually supports this uh we're making that assumption as, as same if we're saying there is autism syndromic autism genes and non syndromic autism genes we're assuming and you know i'm not i think it it it's an it's an hypothesis that 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 can be looked at but but the underlying uh the underlying uh premise here is that there is a difference between syndromic autism. And uh non-syndromic autism with regard to the autism, and that's actually wrong because autism is by definition defined by the observable characteristics. so that's like you know the the, the, the neurodevelopmental features, the behavioral uh, characteristics that are you know described in our in our consensus in, in DSM5, for example. but it's it's blind uh, and ignorant to the etiology. Right. Right. Yeah. And
2: and um, <clears throat> what we're seeing now, um, there are a specific lists of genes that are used in the diagnostic setting, and and some of these genes are getting classifiers such as being syndromic, or in some cases, uh, it's implied they're non-syndromic, uh, and we just don't have enough data yet to say that something is is only associated with a syndromic form, if we're going to even use that term, and I think that can be quite um, it can complicate interpretations and lead uh, healthcare providers in the wrong direction in some cases, right? So what we would prefer is if you have an autism diagnosis, you go with that, autism spectrum disorder, autism. And then if you know something else, if there is a syndrome attached to it based on the medical comorbidities or uh, co-occurrences, then you you can use that name also. And if you know which gene has been found to be involved, uh, pathogenic variant has been found, like shank 3 or CHD8 or, um, you know, norexin 1 or whatever it is, you attach that also, you include that, so you have more specificity in the diagnosis.
0: So, yes, you're you're answering these questions, which is, syndromic autism was kind of a shorthand to describe the collection of these different yeah, features, yeah. including things like intellectual disability and... Yeah genetic findings and medical comorbidities and yeah it was a shorthand it wasn't a perfect shorthand but at the same time what are you suggesting you're saying autism with or autism spectrum disorder with um is there any you know yeah yeah, because yeah no, that, you do yeah. want to kind of make sure that that people are uniquely represented um Absolutely. with their specific needs but maybe the word syndromic is wrong but um
1: well so well you know. exactly exactly i mean i'm we're actually arguing that using the word syndromic autism is is it doesn't do justice to the uniqueness of each person uh, and it's understandable it's i mean we're you can look backwards and say it's wrong we're not saying that we're just saying going forwards We should you know be more specific so 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 here's here's to your to your question exactly Mm -hmm. what are the steps so the first step for me as a child psychiatrist would be like asking the question does the child have autism yes or no and make that diagnosis secondly see if there's anything else psychiatrically or developmentally like intellectual disability and so on And then as a medical doctor, see if there's any other medical complexity and say, well, you know, this child also has a cleft palate and some morphological features. So what would I say? I would say this is a child with autism with additional uh, symptoms uh, in other organ systems, for example, the heart or the the palate, right? And then I would say, and that's a separate uh, annotation, say, and for this child, we actually know that all this relates to know this or that gene and 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 you know and you can even say this or that that uh, genetic syndrome i'm okay with we're not against the word syndrome we're just saying we should stop using it in conjunction with autism
0: and would you say as a psychiatrist you mentioned you know starting with the autism diagnosis and then going on from autism then intellectual disability then genetic diagnosis is that the order were you just giving that as an example or is that the order in which you would well it's it's the natural order
1: for the clinician but as as steve just pointed out as for a molecular geneticist the order starts probably with the genetic variant it depends on your context it
2: uh, again your entry point in, in the clinical genetic setting, um, it may be that you find a genetic variant in a gene associated with autism, but uh, the sample the slash patient was referred to you for a different reason, right? So that's why you, you need to get the terminology right and have all the right information. Uh, or it could be that it's being referred for an autism diagnosis. In the research setting, we're studying autism. So our entry point is always always autism. And it's interesting because most, most of the genetic, um, uh, and actually all of the genetic uh, genes and copy number variants have been identified have come from the research realm and then they migrate into the clinical diagnostic mm-hmm. setting. Um, so they're the users of the information. And because they're clinical geneticists and for a long time clinical geneticists have used the term syndromic for a lot of different reasons. I think moving into the realm of behavioral genetics um you'll see a lot of these different changes in how we use terminology and language uh i'd like term of a, a shorthand uh kind yeah. of a, a, a you know a way to catch all phrase to uh w- but we need to move towards specificity that's the the whole concept of precision medicine precision health for yeah, example yeah, yeah. and we can do that in some cases i would say i think it's important to point out that in roughly 20% of um, individuals that have an autism diagnosis, there is some type of genetic classifier, a gene that's been identified that would have some diagnostic potential. Uh, and that'll get that'll get uh, better over time as we as we get more and more information. Um, how far it will go, we don't really know yet. Um, and and I think because there'll never be 100% of um, answers that it's easy to kind of default into shorthand type uh, grab grab bags or, or buckets, if you will.
0: What are the alternative terms in research, Dr. Scherer? Because you may do a genetic study and find, you know, 50 genes represented in that study and different phenotypes associated with each of those 50 genes. In, in terms of kind of classifying together would you say anyone with a known genetic or an established genetic mutation in a certain class of genes or
2: so does the individual have uh meet cer- certain criteria and that's typically said in the study to have a diagnosis of autism Now, as dr Vorsman said that's a behavioral diagnosis now it's a clinical diagnosis and then you do your you do your genetic study, that's kind of the first testing you do now, before it would be something different. But now that we know that genetics has a, a role and that we found lots of genes, that would be the next test. And so if you find something, we're finding something in roughly 20% of cases. You should add that. You should add the gene that's that's involved. I mentioned things like shank 3, norexin 1, CHD8. There's a, there's a good list of these that we sign out. We sat in this room a couple of days ago with two genetic counselors and signed out 50 reports explaining to families why their autism came about in their family. So this is happening right across the world, Canada and the United States for sure. So that's that's what we, you know, that's what we would recommend. Um, and, uh, and in some cases, when you look closer at the clinical records and interview the families, uh, you can see that these participants in the research studies, uh, or people who are coming through the clinical genetics for, you know, if they have the, the referral uh, diagnosis of autism, they have other things, they have other medical complications. And often what we're finding now is we've, we, so we have our patients enrolled in our autism study, we do the genetics, and then we find um, CHD8 or SHANK3 involved. And then we go back to the clinicians and say, this gene has been found to be involved in a lot of other uh, medical complications that are not, involving the brain, it may involve a different organ. Okay, so you should go and look for these. Cardiomyopathy is is one that we've seen, GI problems. Some of these uh, actually have treatments associated with them. So you need to go and look for these. Uh, or, or there may be a carrier of a particular genetic variant, for example, say a father or a sibling who has one of these um, these quote-unquote genes involved in autism but they don't have formal presentation of autism, you know, you need to go and look for you need to go and look for autism actually in these individuals and, and see if they have characteristics. So the genetics this is kind of a genetics first approach. So if you find a gene, then you go and look for different um, hmm. characteristics or you can call them symptoms in the research setting. So um, so I, I think that's kind of also what's happening now too is we're moving from uh, into it, it's pretty straightforward to do the genetic testing. You can sequence a whole genome now for. You know, less than $1,000. And I would say the behavioral diagnosis probably more than that takes, takes a lot of time. So if you, whatever, if you do the genetic testing first, you may, may find a genetic uh, explanation and then you go and look at the, at the clinical phenotypes, clinical presentations. Uh, And we're at that inflection point where this is happening fast. And I I think the, you know, the term syndromic for us at least complicates things. That's why we contemplated that in the article. article. Just to come to your question, sorry to go on so long, but again, if you look at the, if you have a chance to look at this genetics and medicine medicine uh, paper we published is a very high impact journal uh, in the medical genetics field. All of the geneticists here will read this um, journal. We have four different groupings in figure one, uh, kind of explaining um, those that have uh, what w- would have been called uh, before this article, syndromic forms of autism. Uh, and then also those that have a genetic or, or, or uh, there's no genetic explanation yet. And kind of lay out the different um, categories. And I think this is uh, really interesting to look at and it kind of contextualizes where we go with the article. I did want to say um, just to, uh, sorry to take a, again so long I had uh, I have a printout in front of me of all the articles we published over the years and and there was one that's very highly cited that was published uh, with a clinical geneticist Bridget Fernandez who's now in uh Los Angeles and we the title of that article was syndromic autism spectrum disorders moving from a clinically defined to a molecularly defined approach this was from um 2017 it's very highly cited and 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 I've heard by many of my colleagues that they really like, the molecular biologists, the the DNA PhD people like me, really like the term. Um, But then we present it in the context of of the the recent findings and the fact that it actually can can complicate the clinical descriptions. I think most people will understand. We've been getting a lot of positive feedback from Mm -hmm. the new article that came out.
0: I do want to circle back to something that you said, and I want you to reiterate it is um, around sometimes the purpose of genetic testing. So uh, a lot of people wonder, they listen to this podcast and wonder why on earth should I get a genetic test? This comes up over and over again. And you said something about the features that aren't necessarily autism that could have a known etiology. Like, for example, I'm going to throw it out there, Timothy syndrome. If you were diagnosed with Timothy syndrome, besides potentially having autism, what might you expect?
1: Yeah, I can speak that for sure. Uh, um, so m- most of the time uh, these uh, genetic syndromes, they 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 have multiple, they, they, they have consequences across multiple organ systems, right? So, for example, I've been studying uh, for a while uh, the uh, people with the 22Q11.2 deletion Uh, and uh, there's a high rate of autism, there's a high rate of psychosis as well. But there's a lot of uh, additional, uh, from the perspective of the psychiatrist, additional, but, you know, and it depends on your entry point, but there's a lot of other morbidity. So, you know, these children are often born with congenital cardiac abnormalities, immune deficiencies, cleft palate, um uh, hypocalcemia absent thymus uh, there's a whole list of it so uh the the, the genetic diagnosis what happens if you make the, the genetic diagnosis and i've seen this play out multiple times is that immediately uh, in a young child this child will be sent to all these specialists to be screened for these disorders, so they will they will based on the genetic diagnosis, we will send them to the cardiologist to see whether there is a cardiac abnormality that was overseen, and whether there is a, a immune deficiency that needs attention, and so on and so on and so forth. So in that, those are examples where the genetic diagnosis is actually providing guidance for the clinical uh, management and sometimes preemptive clinical management. Right, and then
2: I just add a few uh, comments. So, um, some of the genes that we're finding, roughly actually twenty-five percent so far of the hundred or so that are used in the diagnostic setting, are on the X chromosome. So, uh, if 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 you're a female carrier, you t- you would typically have two X chromosomes. So you would have a quote-unquote backup if one was not working. So um, so females tend to be carriers without showing any type of symptoms of autism or other clinical features. So that's important in the genetic counseling uh, scenario. Um, And then for the, I didn't, I mentioned copy number variants. So these are um, deletions or duplications of segments of DNA that often encompass more than one gene, right? And and, um, there's a a group of conditions (laughs) that are called um, uh, genomic disorders and there's roughly um i think it's 40 or so now regions of the genome uh because of the structure of the dna nearby uh delete and duplicate more often than in typical other regions of the genome and um and they often encompass upwards of a dozen or so genes okay so if you have a deletion of one of these uh you have you can have have kind of extensive developmental characteristics and often we actually see autism or intellectual disability come out so Uh, This this occurs in like 1% to 2% of the population. It's really quite amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So now I'm going to give you a little biology 101 here for your listeners. (laughs) So there's roughly 25,000 protein coding genes in the genome and roughly 25,000 or so uh, non-coding genes, RNA genes in the genome. In both cases, 70% of those are expressed in the brain. Okay. And then of that 70%, 50% also expressed in at least one other organ, often different organs. So you can have a a, a diagnosis of autism because the gene is really important in brain development, but it may also be important important in in cardiac development. So if you find a deletion that encompasses one of these genes, uh, it can affect different um, um, anatomy or or development in, in, in a way. So there is complexity, and that's why we actually really argue for as much specificity as possible. You mentioned, um, I think it was Timothy in the SCN2A story, which is a 2A, 2A, which is uh, interesting because it, there's been some nice data published showing that the, the genetic variants or mutations uh, at specific sites will um, impact how that gene slash protein plays out. In some cases, it'll lead to a, a, a seizure phenotype. Depending on the site of the genetic change, in other cases it won't, which may influence actually, you know, the clinical presentation and the seizure presentation. And there's and there's a growing list of these genotype-phenotype correlations that our whole community is trying to catalog. Asker has a nice paper he published a few years back that shows um, it was in Nature Reviews Genetics and how 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 clinicians can use this to actually impact the decision making in their in their patients. So uh, we've come a long way. And again, I I think the key is to put as much information specifiers as possible attached to Mm -hmm. the autism behavioral diagnosis.
0: I have also heard the argument made, I may not agree with it, but I'm going to share it with Mm -hmm. you. I've heard the argument made that these syndromes, we're not talking about syndromic autism now, because we're not using that word, but these syndromes associate that may have a high prevalence of autism, that that autism has nothing to do with the type of autism that someone has if they do not have a known genetic disorder or medical comorbidities.
1: It depends on what you you mean by what, what this argument actually refers to. Do they mean it has sort of biologically nothing to do with the rest of autism or do they mean it has in terms of symptoms nothing to do with the other uh, uh autisms and so regarding the second uh, argument i will say no because that's not that's not true uh because by definition they they get the diagnosis of autism because they meet the phenomenological criteria for autism it's a behavioral diagnosis and it's like i said before it's ignorant it's blind for genetic etiology but whether biologically it's different well that is questionable it's just you're talking about a group of uh, individuals with autism for whom we happen to have discovered the most likely genetic etiology right and so as such we start to understand what's going on biologically as opposed to the so-called uh, idiopathic autism group where we don't have the genetic etiology. And so I don't think you should be surprised to see differences. It's just like we're we're peeling away from the group of individuals where we don't know the, the cause, right? Uh, two decades ago, maybe we we knew that we were able to find the genetic etiology in one or 2% of the patients with autism. And as Steve just mentioned, now it's more sort of 20% around that. So, you know, we're, we're, we're chipping away from the group of people with autism where we don't have, uh, we don't know what's going on in terms of genetic cause. And we are able to look at that group of people with autism that have a genetic cause. We're able to study them. And of course, we're going to find things. We're going to find maybe differences in head size, differences in, in comorbidity and so on that we don't observe, at least not in a unified way in a group of people without a genetic cause, but that's an artifact of what we're doing. We just separated those with, from those, well, without recognized yet cause.
2: And I would just add, um, nothing is perfect. So if you look at siblings who have the same genetic change in the same gene, who both have a diagnosis of autism, they do look more, their autism looks more alike than uh, other individuals with autism, but they can be different too. Uh, Of course, because their genomes, unless they're identical twins, are are a little bit different and and, and their biology will be will be different. Um, But um, but that's kind of one of the approaches we use to study this. We we published a paper. I think you'll find this interesting. Uh, Your audience probably hasn't heard of this. Um, So Shank 3 is the prototypical autism gene. It was the first one identified that um, at the time was not known really to be involved in autism at all in any form. Uh, Thomas Bergeron's group in France identified this. Uh, anyways, for, you know, it was 15, 20 years ago or so. And, and then uh, in a recent study that we we performed, we, we looked at all of the whole genome sequence data that our group had done, and, and this came from the Simons Foundation, anything in the public. And we found roughly 20 people from around the world who were unrelated who had the exact same genetic change in their SHANK3 gene. Okay, and we went and looked and all of them had an autism diagnosis because they were ascertained for autism. But then we looked um, two in two ways. We looked at other people who we found the same genetic change but didn't have an autism diagnosis. So we called them back in. They always had autism. Okay, They may have had something else. There were actually some in the general population that never tested for autism, but we looked at them. They always had autism. And then we looked at all of those individuals who had this genetic change. They had autism plus something else. So you could call them autism plus uh, syndromic autism if you wanted. We're, although we're removing that, um, but there was a different medical complication. We have this diff, this figure in the paper that kind of shows the uniqueness of uh, of their clinical presentation. But I think it's important because there, there's a lot of um, you know stay even still. Uh, the, you know, every time we have a new paper. That comes out if we do a press release, I hear, oh, we didn't. We don't know what the cause of autism is. Well, we know there are genetic forms of autism. This is a classic example. There are single gene forms of what we call behavioral autism, but often they also have other things involved too. So the, for me, the, the million-dollar question is, are there any genetic changes we've identified, the genes we've identified, that are specific for um, what I call social, behavioral, or You know, uh, some people use the term high functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome, uh, because they still have a formal diagnosis of autism, but they don't have all these other complications. And maybe that's the key to get to uh, a genetic pathway that's underlying all different types of autism. So that's one of the approaches we're using. The last point I just wanted to make is, of course, if you look between males and females, there's going to be differences, too. Right. If you have the same genetic change, because there's really a lot of different biology happening there.
1: Uh, So we have to put that into the context, too. Maybe there's one thing, if if that's okay with you, Lisa, I wanted to Yes,
0: yes, I was just going to ask if there's anything else you wanted to add. Oh, good,
1: oh, good. I was foreseeing that question. (laughs) I, I wanted to say that uh, it it all it sounds uh, a bit as if we're just sharing our opinion, and of course we are, but the paper also, also lays out some data based on on the review of our literature that is in support of this. And one thing I wanted to highlight is that if you simply look at uh, different lists, and these are authoritative lists that are out there and available to the research community, authoritative lists of what we what what. Different sites or different groups call syndromic autism genes, right? Then the the uh, overlap or the uh, how do you say that the the uh, coherence between the, these lists is very low. We actually looked at the three lists. I'm looking at the figures, figure two in the paper, but we looked at at, at the three uh, you know authoritative lists, and we looked at the genes that the, that each of these lists annotate as syndromic autism genes and the the overlap was only 25%. And so you know the, each there there were uh, 45% uh, of the genes that were annotated as syndromic only by one of the three databases and not by the other two. So it it simply tells you that, you know, even those that are, you know, maybe implicitly in favor of of saying syndromic versus non-syndromic autism, you know, they come up with lists that are not consistent with other people's lists. So it it kind of exemplifies the the problem.
0: I would make the argument that if there's no consistency in terms of the, the the particular genes and there's not consistency in terms of the description, then it's totally time to rethink the term. There you go. That's the best summary of the
2: paper that you can do. (laughs) There you go. That's it.
0: Well, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for this thoughtful explanation and thank you for taking the time to write this paper and to contemplate the term syndromic autism.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for giving us the opportunity. That's uh, appreciated. Thank you.